Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scandal Studio today is author Sandra Johnson and her first book, Holy Ground, A Triumph Over Hate Crime in the Deep South, was a national bestseller. Young South Carolina woman goes on the Oprah show. She's reviewed everywhere. And of course, that book, in a way, was background for the, this novel that you've just written, Flowers for the Living. Well, uh, I do have to make a couple of corrections. Uh, the book, Standing on Holy Ground, was reviewed by Oprah. There were two people who were in the book that were on were guests of the show, including Amy Murray, who for an entire season, when you watched Oprah, she was part of the opening scene that mm-hmm. uh, you would see Amy jumping up from mm-hmm. a chair. But I was never on the show. Well, that was, that was Oprah's loss. <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's let's review that book. I, yes. I, I know a lot, a lot of our listeners have, have read it, but this had to do with the burning of churches in South Carolina and mm-hmm. the response of the community, both white and black, to that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Many listeners probably recall the epidemic of church fires that, that happened primarily in the southeast of the U.S., um, in the mid-1990s. Well, St. John Baptist Church in Dixiana, South Carolina, right near the 119 mile marker exit as you're heading from Columbia down to Charleston on I-26, was one of the first churches that were hit by this wave of, of uh, racially motivated arsons, primarily targeting um, rural African-American churches. It was... How I got involved with the story was after reading uh, news coverage in the state newspaper and seeing coverage not only with the local um, uh, news affiliates, but also because of the enormity of the epidemic, um, St. John Baptist and some of the other churches were, I mean, this was attracting a lot of national attention, too. Mm My, my parents became volunteers at the church as they were um, working to get it rebuilt because my dad had seen an article that the state newspaper had read about a, a group of volunteers that were traveling all the way from Texas. They were giving up their, their week's vacation. This was a, employees of a roofing company. They were driving all the way from uh, near Galveston, Texas, all the way to Dixiana, South Carolina, to help rebuild this church. As, and so my, my dad turns to my mom, um, Mary Johnson, and he says, well, honey, you know, if these people can drive all the way from Texas, the white people no less, <laughs> uh, can drive all the way from Texas to rebuild this African-American church that's only 20 miles from us as the crows flies. You know, surely we can do something. So they got involved with helping to rebuild the church. And through them, I got involved and got to know Amy Murray, who was the linchpin for really so much of what happened as far as the rebuilding efforts. She, Barbara Simmons, a number of other people literally put their lives on the line. I mean, they were getting death threats. They were getting death threats as part of the re- at, during the rebuilding process. Exactly. Yes. Not only were they getting death threats, but attempts were being made on their lives. Barbara Simmons, who was another key figure in the rebuilding of the church, her and Amy really got the brunt of it. I mean, they they narrowly escaped attempts on their lives. And and these two women, Barbara Simmons was actually a member of the church. This was a historic church that had originally— been started by Swiss-German immigrants back in the colonial period who would allow their slaves to sit in the gallery of the church. Mm-hmm. But after the Civil War, for various reasons, they the Swiss-German immigrants decided to disband this church. And so they, they started some other 
churches, Lutheran churches in the Sax, what what was then the Saxgotha area, yeah. which is, you know, uh, uh, Lexington and... Pr- primarily Lexington. Uh, primarily Lexington. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, uh, of course, their, their former slaves ha- uh, could not be traveling all these distances, too. So they, they decided to restart the church as a Baptist church. And again, by the mid-1990s, the church had, had been targeted by um, racially motivated arsonists and, and was burned to the ground. How, how large was the congregation at this time? The, the congregation was and remains small. Mm-hmm. It, was only, it was mainly just a handful of families that would get together. It, well, you know, excuse me, that, sure. that's not surprising because through the late 1960s and 70s, that part of Lexington County was a big cotton-growing area. And, of course, most of the people who were doing the labor were tenant farmers. African American mm-hmm. tenant farmers and mm-hmm. cotton production really began to decline. So that would have been the general area they'd have been drawing the members from, and so folks had moved away. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, younger people just did not see the opportunities there, so they they would move away. But one of the families that didn't were the Simmonses, Barbara and and her husband Willie, and it was Barbara that through her professional and personal relationship with Amy Murray, who Amy was such a force in nature and just about everything that she put her hands to. She was very active in, in the Democratic Party here in the state. She was a lead, when it came to any kind of social justice issue here in the state, especially during the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, Amy was really at the forefront of it. And so um, uh, how Barbara, she and Barbara connected is that Amy was the, um, uh, headed up a labor union, one of the few women, not only in the Southeast, but really nationwide, that headed up a labor union. And she initially hired Barbara to clean the offices. Uh, Barbara, African-American woman, very little education, had you know, no real professional experience. She had done a lot of, you know, just days work and that kind of thing. So she started off cleaning the offices just a couple of times a week, and then she took on kind of secretarial duties as Amy taught her how to type, phone, that kind of thing. As there, as Barbara became more intrinsic into the running of the labor union, on an administrative support basis, her and Amy really became like sisters. I mean, they they just, Amy being the older sister and very protective. And and so when when Amy came to uh, work one morning and found Barbara in the office, just doubled over in not physical pain, but psychological pain, because what she had discovered um, the day before, but still managed to drag herself to work the next morning was that St. John Baptist Church had been completely devastated by uh, racists who had uh, attacked the church and just... Um, what was, Did they set it on fire? Now, actually, the, so this is the first of two attacks. Okay, that's what I thought. Right, yeah. So this time it wasn't by fire, but by just the worst kind of vandalism you can imagine. And, and nasty slogans. And- oh, yeah. Just, oh, it, it's it's really just too gross to talk about on public radio. Um, but but anyway, so Amy was like, oh, my God, you know, this is this, I'm not putting up with this. This is just ridiculous um, that that this kind of thing could be happening here in, in uh, you know, the 20th century. And so she helped to lead a campaign with Barbara right at her side um, to get this church rebuilt. And again, it, it resulted in a lot of. I mean, they they put their lives on the line. This was a very long process, that they, but they stuck with it. Well, of course, one of the things was once they started cleaning up, there was a lot of publicity about what they right. were doing. Right. So, yeah. so it became common knowledge that these women were working to clean up and restore St. John Baptist. Right, right, which was a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Because on the one hand, it, it did recruit a lot of other volunteers from everybody from 
legislators like Tom Turnipseed, his wife Judy Turnipseed, to just folks who just felt like they needed to do, do something. And from what you mentioned, Tom Turnipseed, so yeah. obviously South Carolinians, black and white, are responding to the damage right. that had been done. Right, yes. Over the course of a number of years, because again, like I mentioned, the church had been uh, attacked twice, was really destroyed twice. The first by racially motivated vandalism, the second time by racially motivated arson. Um, And over the course of time, about 2,000 people contributed toward rebuilding the effort. and, And sometimes that contribution was nothing more than, you know, two dollars or dropping by a box lunch for some of the volunteers to two people like Amy and Barbara, Tom Turnipseed, um, Sheriff James Metz, other people who were helping to protect St. John, helping to rebuild it almost became a part-time job, if not full-time job for them. Okay, so we've, we've, we've got two incidents. We have the vandalism and that was repaired, and then... Then the fire. Then the fire, which totally destroyed the church. Right. And then that was rebuilt, volunteers coming from Texas, right. as well as, as local right. folks. And as well as I can remember, when you talk about protecting it, is there were people who actually stayed on the property at night. Exactly, yeah. Because this is a very isolated rural mm-hmm. part of Lexington County. Right. Uh, and and sadly, that was the pattern throughout the South with these isolated churches. Uh, there's nobody living right around them. Right, so. right. Yeah. St. John had been built on Old State Road, mm-hmm. which, if I'm remembering correctly, it was an, a Native American Indian trading path that really kind of cut across the state. Well, it, it started out that way. And there's State Street in West Columbia, <laughs> is the, is part of that's where it's it's where the State Road came into, right there by the Congaree River. Uh-huh. Uh, there's still portions of that road. If you get on State Street and you start heading towards the coast, you'll you'll end up on unpaved sections of what was the original old State Road from Charleston to Columbia. Mm-hmm. But like a lot of roads in this country, it started out as a Native American trading path. Right. right. They knew the best way to get there, and then, <laughs> then the settlers just followed that. So th- so St. John Baptist was, was on the old part of the old state road. Right. And, and had a lot of visibility until a various number of things happened, including the building of I, uh, the construction of I-26, which pulled traffic, excuse me, away from that part of old state road, as well as the construction of what had been Eastman Chemical Plant, mm-hmm. that kind of cut off some of the the traffic that used to run in, in, in front of the church, making it visible, you know, making it um, very clear if somebody was, you know, kind of hanging around yeah. and looked suspicious or whatever. And it, it, it isolated it. Right, it isolated it. And another thing to keep in mind is that the Grand Dragon for the Ku Klux Klan for the state of South Carolina lived within, I think, 10 to 15 miles of the church. And this was very much a KKK stronghold in this area. And so, but not to get too far afield from uh, Flowers for the Living, but it was when I and my family um, became involved with rebuilding this this church um, again through the efforts that were spearheaded by Amy Murray and Barbara Simmons, and I saw these two women that were crossing racial barriers and helping other people to cross racial barriers to come together and rebuild this church. Um, it did you know, kind of plant a seed in my mind about, I I guess that began, planted the seeds that germinated into um, Flowers for the Living, which is about how two people, an African-American woman and the young white cop who killed the woman's son, Mm -hmm. not only had to cross racial barriers, but a lot of 
other barriers to help each other to rebuild their lives, which are both just completely devastated by this boy's death. Well, before we get into that, because I do want to get into that, I just need to share with our listeners some of the reviews that you got for um, standing on holy ground. Mm -hmm. I think that because you were dealing with the the concept and of racial reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And from USA Today, a ruthlessly honest account of the new progressive South still struggling with the very old legacy of hate. And from O Magazine, that's Oprah's mm-hmm. magazine, shows how faith, love, and sheer bullheadedness may lose battle after battle against racism and still win the war. And the last one from Southern Living, a story not only of a church under siege, but also of the courage of everyday heroes who joined together to save it. In simple and honest language, Sandra E. Johnson brings to life this real-life battle between good and evil. Hmm. Now, <laughs> that's pretty nice. <laughs> It's more than it's more than pretty nice. As you know, those of us who write, sometimes we get good reviews and sometimes we don't get such good reviews. But you got glowing reviews and I obviously I've read the book, you and I talked about it before, and then I got your your latest, your novel, Flowers for the Living. It continues this same theme of reconciliation. And I've got to ask you about the timing because in the last eighteen months, South Carolina we've had uh, the shooting in North Charleston. We had the tragedy at Mother Emanuel. Uh, we've had other shootings. Mm-hmm. Did you start writing this book before those? It, you know, it, that's the spooky part of this whole story. Um, I actually finished this book, which which does have a lot of kind of torn from the headlines, today's headlines quality to to it. I actually finished this book for all intents and purposes about seven years ago. Um, so, so right after you did your other one. Right. It, it just took me a long time to find a publisher. <laughs> I understand <laughs> for, that. I for understand. various reasons. Um, and I, I won't bore the, the readers, uh, uh, listeners rather, into, um, into why, but it, it just took me a long time to, to find a, a publisher. And um, so I had no earthly idea when I, when I finished this book that by the time that it came out, that these horrific incidents, um, the first one that kind of came to my mind and and I started thinking, oh my God, I I can't believe the parallels was between this and uh, what happened in Florida with, if I'm not mistaken, his name was Trevon Martin, but in any case, and so I was thinking, oh, my gosh, what a terrible situation. And then, of course, they just started happening more and more. Then the next thing was the Michael Brown situation, which had even more parallels to the point that the boy in my story, I originally had named Michael, but I right before we went to press, because— uh, I I decided, wait a minute, I, I don't want anybody thinking that I'm doing in anything in any way to try to take advantage of what okay. happened. Yeah. So so I cha- had the publisher to change the boy's name from, from Michael Jennings to Marcus Jennings. Okay. All right. It, it sounds kind of, in a, in a way, it's, it's sad, but once these events... The one in Florida, the one in Missouri. Once that right. begins to happen, somebody decides, well, this might be a nice time to publish a book like that. Do you think that? No, I, I don't think so, because I think what um, Paul Ruffin, who is my editor with Texas Review Press, I think what he saw was what was really and still is the heart of the story is about regardless of of the color of our skin, regardless of whether, you know, which side of the tracks of of town that we live on, we we are all human beings. I mean, we we um and and the two main characters in this book, 
they take turns telling their stories through alternating chapters. Um, and it begins with the mother of, of, of Marcus, the, the troubled African-American boy who forces this white cop named Rusty Carter to kill him. And both Emma, Marcus's mother, and Rusty, who has to kill Marcus, they both find that their lives are falling apart through the guilt that they feel by this boy's death. Yes, and and I really want to get into that because both of them, part of the reason that they're torn apart not they're torn apart, but their lives are torn apart, mm-hmm. is the reaction of their respective families right. to the situation. Exactly. Uh, Emma's family, they don't look at it as suicide by cop. It's murder, and they want a national figure to come in and publicize. They want to, to not necessarily trade off it, but the younger members, particularly and particularly the father, they're going to get that cop, and they're going to make a big deal out of it. You know, and... Rusty is descended from several generations of white police who also happen to be members of the Klan, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is uncovered in the course of, of, of it. And both Emma and Rusty have a hard time dealing with their own folks. Right. And also, in a way, it's kind of like a hurricane has come in and swept away control of their lives from both of them. A hurricane in the sense that without all the facts coming out, there's media pouring in from all over the country portraying this as yet another gunning down of a unarmed, innocent black teenager, which triggers a, a mass race riot and, and the burning of, of a a lot of the town, and as you mentioned, Emma's family are completely, particularly her husband, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of things that Emma has told him about the truth of really what happened, but because of various circumstances, he swears Emma to secrecy about a lot of the... He's, the, he's pretty brutal about that, too. Exactly. Either, either you are for us exactly. or against us. And right. by that, he's referring to the African-American community. Right. right. Yeah, there, there is definitely the lines drawn in the sand by Emma's husband Otis. that a lot of people yeah. follow in yeah. on. Yeah, her husband, Otis, and then her children. And then her, her children. Her, the surviving children. Right. And, of course, the media just, you know, feeds off of this, really setting up, you know, that there is a chasm between African-Americans and whites. There is a chasm between African-Americans and law enforcement. And in this town, it's a fictional town, but really, I grew up in Columbia, um, I went through the Columbia Police, uh, Citizen Police Academy as part of my research for the book. So I guess in, in my mind, when I'm, I see Columbia as, as, I, as scenes come out in the book, but for example, Waverton, I really kind of based it on how Waverly used to be well, way back <laughs> when I was a child. I mean, before, you know, now um, a lot of... Uh, uh, development has happened there, but it used to be just this beaten down enclave of of where, you know, there was just, I mean, misery seemed to produce more misery. And I, I suspected, I saw Waverton and I, and there was some <laughs> names, uh, there were some name, other names that I, I picked up on. But I think the important thing was this was a medium-sized southern city. This was not New Orleans or Atlanta or Memphis or big place. This was a relatively small community where, interestingly, blacks and whites knew one another across the racial line because it was relatively small. Right. Now, Emma and her family may live in a rundown part of town, Mm -hmm. but I'm a gardener. Everybody (laughs) on the listens knows that I'm a gardener. And your first paragraph... That, that that hooked me. I didn't have to read the first chapter. I got hooked. And I, I'm sorry, Sandra. I'm going to read this first paragraph because it's 
if you love gardening, this speaks to me because those of us who love gardening is a way that we create ourselves. It is our, there's just an experience when I'm out there, whether it's digging weeds or putting something in the ground, I'm at peace when I do it. I, I, I love that. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is the opening paragraph of Flowers Are for the Living. White calla lilies mean forgiveness. That was what Emma Jennings had read somewhere in a magazine. Well, if there ever came a time when she needed to show someone she forgave them, she had plenty of flowers for the occasion. From just three bulbs that multiplied to spread around her gardenians and now threatened to invade her bed of lantanas. The creamy whiteness of the lilies with their deep golden throats blended nicely with the sunshine yellow lantanas, but they were becoming too much of a good thing, at least in this particular place, balance. That was the secret to good gardening. There had to be the right balance of colors, textures, shapes, sizes, and fragrances. Otherwise, a garden could get out of whack as badly as the rest of the world. You really set the scene. And all I could think of, things can get out of whack. If you're not careful, you just can't. You know, how does your garden grow? (laughs) Yeah, and, and I'm so glad that you picked up on that because, and that's why the title is as it is. The flowers really represent the course of events throughout the book from the beginning to the end. As they thrive, as they wither, and as they come back, that also represents what is happening with Emma Jennings and Rusty Carter as as their lives are disintegrating they they ironically find that the only place where they can go to get hold of a lifeline to keep them going a, a, a place where they find some solace a place where they find some solace is the place where Marcus is buried which Emma Because she is so consumed with guilt, she is an avid gardener. She starts off in the book as an avid gardener, and her yard is is the one point of beauty in this downtrodden neighborhood that her and her husband live in. And yet when, when Marcus gets killed, she feels like, had I paid as much attention to Marcus as I did with my gardening, Marcus would still be alive. I would have picked up the the signals that something was wrong with this child um, and done something about it and not just blown it off as, oh, it's just a teenage phase. So she starts obsessively gardening at Marcus's graveside and turns it to this, I mean, thing of beauty and rusty his life is falling apart because he is thinking, had I just taken another split second to look at what Marcus had in his hand, I wouldn't have shot him. (laughs) He would still be alive. This town would not be the poster child for horrible race relations. This race right wouldn't be be happening. Um, All these other horrible things wouldn't be happening, but the worst of which is a 15-year-old boy is dead because of me, because of my poor judgment. So he's starting to have panic attacks. He is starting to have um, just a host of other psychological issues, whereas Emma, again, she is obsessively, I mean, to the point of spending just pretty much her every waking hour um, because this is the only place that she can go and feel like she can... Well, well, she has to get away from the media circus that is set up. Both of them do. I mean, right. the, both homes are basically under siege right. by television reporters, by whatever. Yes. Um, and I need to stop for just a minute to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking to Sandra Johnson, who has written a novel about racial reconciliation in a southern town, it could be Columbia, <laughs> and it's called Flowers for the Living. There is an immediacy to this novel that you don't often find. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's easy to see this, you know, the TV trucks lined outside somebody's house, the reaction of Emma's husband and family. I mean, it's so, it is so and the, understandable. She's got a very with-it next-door neighbor, though, by the way, yes. who helps keeps her <laughs> grounded. But 
poor Rusty, he's got an unsympathetic farmer, father, excuse me. That kid got what he deserved. You need to stand up and be a man. Mm -hmm. And then while all of this is going on, there are people coming in from the outside on both sides of the equation. Mm -hmm. And it it looks like the whole town's about ready to blow up. Mm -hmm. And then somebody comes into the picture and tries to kill Rusty. Right. Um, yes. And, and again, the, the parallels with real-life events, with what happened in Dallas, what happened in, in Baton Rouge, as far as the attacks on police officers, I just, as, as each month has gone by, even since the book has been released, I just cannot believe how these events are happening that were in this book again, you know, that I, I really finished years ago. But 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 also it came out before the attacks in Dallas and and some right. but I mean maybe maybe that's because, you know, we all keep up with the news and there's a wonderful phrase you use about the news in there, about not being good news. Yes. That Emma, toward the beginning of the book, she is watching some of the news coverage because the town is already on edge because a number of, of other events that have recently happened involving the police department's actions, and the police department is predominantly white. It's, it's uh, overwhelmingly white and not at all reflective of, of the uh, racial diversity within the community. So she is, and there's also a heat wave going on. And and that's the, where I thought it was. I, I knew it was Columbia. You had, <laughs> you had, you, you had, you had three weeks of over a hundred degrees heat. I knew that was Columbia. <laughs> well, again, as, as with each month that has gone on, I, I, there has just been more and more parallels, and and of course, we just experienced the hottest summer on record, and, and so. The the town is is already on edge. The heat is also, and I, I hope that people can see it. I wanted it to be a character, just as much as the setting of the book, that it is a character as well, um, because it's driving people to do things that ordinarily they wouldn't do. P- if people they- are, people get irritated. Right. In fact, I, I've talked to a friend who works in his emergency room physician, and when you have a heat wave, you have more folks coming into the emergency room. <laughs> I mean, it, people are just irritable. Right, right, yeah. The, people tend to have hair trigger tempers, mm-hmm. whereas normally they could just, you know, mm-hmm. think that things uh, roll yeah. off the, the yeah. back of them. With both of these books, Standing on Holy Ground... Uh, as well as Flowers for the Living, both of them talk about that regardless, you know, again, of our racial differences, they are literally skin deep, literally skin deep. And once you get past that thin layer of skin, you see that we all hurt. We want the same thing. There's so much that we have in common that that. Unfortunately, people who have different agendas can can make us forget the fact that we are all connected. It makes me me think of uh, of a one of my favorite quotes by John Muir, who was a uh, Scottish person who came to the United States back in the late 1880s and mm-hmm. and and eventually uh, helped to find uh, fa- found the uh, Sierra Club. Mm-hmm. But he, he talks about that we are so connected that you cannot touch one thing, one single solitary thing, without touching everything in the universe. I, I believe that books such as Flowers for the Living are among those that, that help us see our connectedness with each other. Sandra, we were talking, I mentioned earlier that Emma has a great line in here after she's while she's watching the news. Mm-hmm on television, and she refers to it as the No Good News News Show. She said, that's what Daddy used to call it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, this is the opening scene of the book, and she's uh, working in her garden. Again, she's an avid gardener. This is her therapy. As as more and more events happen to ratchet up the the racial tension within her town, she is spending that much more time in her yard uh 
um, you know, seeking solace there, but goes into the house because she wants to um, watch enough of the news to find out whether the heat wave will continue. She wants to watch the weather report. What she sees is the NAACP picketing the um, uh, uh, city hall um, about these controversial police shootings of African-American men in the town. And she just turns the news off because it it depresses her and and it makes her think about what her her father called the, the program, which was the No Good News news program. You know, you only get on there, they only report bad news. But what she finds is that simply by turning the TV off doesn't prevent the events that she has been seeing coverage of from really exploding in her whole in her own life actually in a literal sense because after her son is killed and and without all the facts being present what the community sees what what national uh, media sees is this is another poor unarmed african american teen who is gunned down by a white racist police officer for no good reason and rusty's family's background Again, he comes from a long line of Klansmen. It really plays into the narrative that the media wants to portray of, you know, your your classic, stereotypical, redneck, racist police officer who kills an unarmed African-American teen. The other thing that plays into it is that, as you mentioned, Rusty's father had been a uh, police officer, too had also killed an unarmed African-American man, but for the circumstances were as different as night and day. However, the media gloss over that. They just see, you know, you've got a whole family. Like father, like son. Like father, like son. And this is what has been going on. This is a family dynasty of racist officers who will take use any opportunity to murder blacks and get away with it. All right, Nate, your narrative is very realistic. You use racial stereotypical terms for both blacks and whites. Mm-hmm. Um, how have your your friends, your African-American friends, reacted to that, to, particularly to use um, the N-word? Um, there's been no reaction at all. Um, if... Uh, and I think that is because, you know, they, they see that this is this is reality, for better or worse. Well, I mean, it's not for better, for sure. But this is reality, um, that these are, are terms that are used. Not only the whites describing African-Americans, but if you remember Otis also, as, as the Otis being Emma's husband, Marcus's father, as a race riot is breaking out. And at first, the young people that are starting the riot, they're tearing up their own community. And Yeah, they throw something through a window of a laundromat. Right. And he makes a comment about, yeah. you know, they're burning, they're burning down their own, yeah. Yeah. Their, their the, own neighborhood. These dumb, you know, the N-word. Yeah. They ain't got enough sense to go into the, um, to the white, to where the white folks are. They're tearing up their own neighborhood. Uh, because there, there was a while in, in the publishing business that uh, that word and the use of cracker and white trash were forbidden. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think, you know, my point of view is, you know, you certainly don't want to sensationalize things, but you don't want to sugarcoat things either. You You need to be, or at least... I feel like I need to be real. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, reality isn't always pleasant. No. But trying to ignore the things that make us uncomfortable, it doesn't make them go away. Mm-hmm. What it tends to do is make them fester. And when they do finally erupt, they cause much more harm than they would have had they been seen for what they were and dealt with or what they were, when when it became evident, this is what, what existed. Okay. I found the book very realistic, very relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the things that are occurring in the news in the last six months, your book came out and it captured the tensions that we've got in American society today. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe that the book came out not when I wanted it to, but when it needed to come out. When there needs to be discussions about race here in America, about connections and disconnections between African Americans and and other communities of color and law enforcement. And what I have been hearing from readers of the book is that it is helping to heal very raw wounds. All right. Let me ask you, you know, your opening paragraph was one of my favorite passages from the book. Have you got a favorite passage you would like to read for our listeners? Oh, okay. Um, Let's see. I think what I'll do is, this is still toward the um, opening of the book, and this kind of introduces Marcus, whose death is what triggers the whole series of of terrible events. And so um, this is after um, Emma has been working out in the garden. She came back in the house to check the weather forecast to see if the heat wave will continue. And she remembers that she had told Marcus like an hour before to uh, get up out of bed and to clean his room. Okay. She climbed the stairs of the house She and Otis bought 38 years earlier. Though modest, it was still one of the best in Waverton, and she was glad that she and Otis at least had something to show for all of their hard work and had something to pass on to their children. A lot of people in Waverton weren't able to leave their kids anything but a stack of overdue bills. Marcus's door was closed. She knocked on it. Marcus? Silence. She rapped on the door one more time and opened it. With the window blinds closed and the drapes drawn, it was so dark she could barely make out her son's thin form buried beneath the quilt. She hand-stitched for him last winter. The bedroom was like a cave, and its stank odor made her suspect rotting food was somewhere amidst the piles of junk covering the floor and chest of drawers. She'd fussed at him about leaving dirty clothes in the room, especially since he already knew she didn't like how he had started eating in his room instead of at the kitchen table with her and Otis. He acted as if he couldn't stand being around them long enough to even eat the simple meal she prepared for them. Marcus! She snapped on the bedside lamp and yanked back the quilt, revealing more of his scrawny body. He wasn't eating enough anymore to keep a bird alive, despite her pleading and making a special effort to cook his favorite foods. Raising his hand to shield himself from the light, he blinked at her as if she were a stranger. That made Emma even madder. If I have to tell you one more time to get up and clean this nasty, filthy room... She let the unfinished threat dangle in the air. Maybe both of them would believe it this time. I I, I think you've set the stage, particularly you've let us know that something's going on with Marcus. Yes, yes. And later on, we don't want to give give that. (laughs) There's a very crucial turning point in the book that Emma finds out, but this setting the scene sticks with you, those of us who are reading it, as the rest of events unfold. It's like, we know some things. We know what Emma knows, but Otis doesn't really know everything. Mm -hmm. The next-door neighbor, even though she doesn't talk to Dottie that you know, about everything. She's, she's got her best friend, mm-hmm. and she's not talking to her local clergyman about it. Mm-mm. Her preacher, no. 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 This sets up the fact that there's been a change in Marcus. Now, the thing is, Emma thinks this is her kind of surprise baby. She had Marcus when she was 45 years old. He was completely unexpected. Um, there was a, a large... Uh, age range between him and his older siblings. But Emma is an experienced parent. Um, and so when she's seeing these changes, she's thinking it's a phase. Um, you know, It's the hormones. Either yeah. I know, dealing with grandsons. <laughs> <laughs> 
these things that you know she she notices she she kind of thinks back on here they concern her but she's not thinking this is something that i need to get this boy to a doctor about yeah he's he's not eating right right he is moody but again hey what teenager isn't (laughs) yeah what (laughs) teenager what teenager isn't and of course later on she looks back and says she should have seen this you know we, we always have the second guess particularly when there's a tragedy involved if i had done this right. if i had done that and quite frankly i think that's one of otis's problems is he didn't spend a whole lot of time with this young man right right um, more more importantly otis is filled with rage and he does not feel like he can direct that rage to his son, and he cannot direct that rage to Emma. The people that he can direct his rage to, well, the principal person that he can direct his rage to is to Rusty. He blames him and, and the police department and everything that they have stood for for the fact that his 15-year-old boy is dead. All right. Let's let's just turn now to sort of sort of general things. What Sandra Johnson going to do next? Actually, I'm I'm working on it right now. It's it's uh, my first historical novel, and it's called Luna. The main character is um, oddly enough uh, another 15 year old African American, but this time she is right before the the uh, Civil War breaks out, and she is a slave on a rice plantation in Dorchester County. Over a series of events, is sold away from her family and ends up in Texas because, as you can probably talk about in your sleep, about Eli Whitney's invention of the the cotton gin really drove cotton production. Um, westward. And so even though Luna is working on a rice plantation, a person comes by the plantation. He's buying slaves because he he plans to set up a cotton plantation in in Texas. And you mentioned she's 15. She's 15. And so that would mean she could be a field hand and also the marketplace, she's getting ready to be childbearing years, so that mm-hmm. makes her another investment. But as the world of cotton expanded westward all the way to Texas, she's, as the old saying, sold down the river. Right. Exactly. What kind of an inspiration for this is my mother's mother's grandfather, who um, his original na- name was Pharaoh. He was owned by a Mr. Jackson in Virginia, and he was born in the late 1700s. And even though he was an elderly man, because at this point, him and his wife had adult children, and I think they had grandchildren too. But still, his his owner decided that he needed to liquidate some of his property for cash. That's fairly common in, in Virginia. The tobacco market was going down, and that's where he really got sold down the mm-hmm. river. And as you will remember, many of the minstrel songs from that period carry me back to old Virginia, which is, is a, supposed to be a slave's lament from being sold off from. So, anyway, so it's, you know, this is. Using your family history to set the story, when do you think you're going to finish it? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm hoping within the next year it has, um, and, and you can speak to this as well, when you start doing research, it becomes uh, sirens on the beach that, you know, you just can get sucked into it and sucked into it. Um, so I'm, I'm still uh, neck deep in, into doing research. Um, uh, but I'm hoping to have this book completed within about a year. Okay. It's involved reading a lot of slave narratives. Uh, thank God for USC Press with books like I Belong to South Carolina and and, and other uh, books that really chronicle the day-to-day life of slaves mm-hmm. here in the state. I say all that to say that it, it's taken a lot of um, of research, and sometimes I, I just have to stop. I, I literally break down in, into tears, and I can't 
I can't. You know, I have to take a break just for my okay. sanity. Right. Sandra, I understand, and sadly, AT is giving us the wind-up signal. So, oh goodness, uh, this conversation we'll, we'll continue when your next book comes out. Okay, okay? so be wonderful. A, any last words for our listeners before we sign off today? Yeah, USA Today's review of my first book, Standing on Holy Ground, where they write. A ruthlessly honest account of the new progressive South still struggling with a very old legacy of hate shows that, and, and, and I think it is reflective of this book as, as well, that we've come a long way, not only here in the South, but throughout this country, but we've still got a ways to go. Absolutely, and that's what... My dear friend Charles Joyner, who in talking about race relations in the South, often said, people don't know how far we've come, but we still have a long way to go. <laughs> Sandra Johnson, author of a new novel dealing with racial issues and racial reconciliation, Flowers for the Living. Thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you so much. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Sandra Johnson's latest effort, Flowers for the Living, when you first open it, you think, gosh, she must have taken today's headlines and written this book, but she didn't. And I think what that tells us is that the issues that she discusses, and she refers sometimes to the racial chasm in the South, reconciliation, reaching across the racial divide, issues with law enforcement, issues with the media are not anything new. It's part of how we have all been shaped here in not just the South, but this country. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The program is produced and engineered by Andrew Shire. The executive producer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.